Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. This week, we're bringing you a recording from a recent workshop that took place in the village. In case you haven't heard about it, The Village is our membership community where you can find support and training to meet your needs. For more information, head to theadoptionconnection.com slash village. We hope you enjoy the workshop. Welcome to this month's workshop on raising worry-free kids. I am just curious if you are here live with us and you want to just pop into the chat, maybe some of the worries that you hear your kids talking about. That's just curiosity for me. But while you guys are doing that, David, will you just give us a quick introduction to who you are, a little bit about the work that you do before we get rolling? I'd be honored to. First off, I am so grateful to all of you for carving out time and space to be a part of this time. I'm a big fan of Melissa's and the work they do and just honored to get to be a part of this morning. And I am actually a therapist. I practice at an amazing place in Nashville, Tennessee called Daystar Counseling. I'm actually here in my counseling office right now. And we do the work a little different in that we're in a house rather than an office building. That was a very intentional decision for us. For any of you who've taking kids you love to counseling or you've gone before yourselves, you know, it can be an overwhelming experience, particularly that first time. So we try to do as much as we can to help folks feel really families feel really safe and disarmed in the front of their journey and coming. We actually currently have five therapy dogs on staff. In fact, you all may see one napping or wandering over my shoulder. He may want to join our session at some point throughout the time. And that too was a very strategic decision for us to to have dogs on staff because they do, as I think probably all of us know who have animals, an amazing job, I think, of just helping us settle. So they are a huge part of the work we do. I've been a part of this practice for the last 25 years, work with not just an amazing team of canines, but an amazing team of humans as well. And just grateful Our whole focus is work with the pediatric population. So that's all we do is see kids, adolescents, and families and just have been grateful for the opportunity to do this work for this long, to sit front row and and really just learn from kids and families in in all these years of work. And then out of that work, I've had the opportunity to write some books and, and travel around and teach some classes on different aspects of parenting. So honored that I get to be a part of time with you all today. Yeah. And by some books, you mean like 10. (laughs) (laughs) A few. (laughs) few. Okay. So David, what do you think are probably, what are your favorite, what have been your favorite books to work on so far? And then maybe secondly, if it's different, what do you think have been the books that parents have told you have been the most important for them? Mm. It's a great question. I would say years ago, Back in 2009, I released a book called Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and was a book tracking boy development from birth all the way through adolescence, which I talk a lot in that book about how, you know, every developmental theorist would agree that boys are much later to finish adolescence. And so they agree it's somewhere between 22 and 25 when boys are finished, where it's 19 to 20 for girls. And so 
that's but one example of why I felt really strongly about writing that book, that we could have a more accurate understanding of a boy's development, the way he's wired, the way he operates, the way he sees the world. And in response to that, how we could better parent him, better teach to him, better instruct him, all the different ways I think we engage him. And so I have over the years just had a lot of, of parents who gave me some great feedback from having read that book and just thought, oh my goodness, particularly I've had a lot of moms, I've laughed with a lot of moms over the years who maybe only grew up with sisters and said, you know, I just, this seems so abnormal to me. And then I read the book and I was like, that's really normal. It's just, I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up around boys. And so there's a lot about their development that seems confusing. And, and so I've been really grateful for the feedback from that book. And then a couple of years ago, I co-authored a book called Are My Kids on Track? with two of my colleagues here where we track four emotional, four social, and four spiritual milestones that we want to see the kids we love progressing toward and just defining some of what those milestones are. And then more importantly, talking about what are some of the nuts and bolts of helping kids develop these emotional muscles, these social muscles. And so I've been really thankful for that book's impact as I've intersected with parents in different parts of the country who have felt like it was helpful to have a little more clarity around what those things look like as we think about traveling the journey of helping our kids develop in those spaces. Yeah, when it comes to development and those milestones, and I promise we're going to get to the worry piece in a minute here, but a lot of almost every parent either attending the workshop today or listening later is parenting a child who probably has some form of complex trauma or early adversity. And so, you know, we know that a lot of times that changes the like rate of development. And we see a lot of like delayed, a lot of times we tell our parents, like kind of think of your kids, like half their social and emotional ages, just as like a rule of thumb. So how, when, when we're reading books kind of that are written for the general population that track those milestones, do you have tips for like, you know, are they still going to go through the same milestones, but just maybe at different times? Like how do we read a book like that and kind of take into account that early trauma? It's a great question. And I would say we always want to be taking into account that trauma. So I love even the way, Melissa, you asked that question. And We talk a lot throughout the book about what it looks like to modify the timeline based on our kids' unique stories and and unique needs. And knowing that, you know, we talk in the introduction of that book, how every kid is going to progress at their own individual pace, just as they're all going to move through physical development at their own individual pace. The same is going to be true with the emotional thread of their development, the social development, all those different parts and pieces unique. And I think to the degree that we're really leaning in and studying who they are and the uniqueness of their stories and using incredible resources like the one I'm getting to be a part of this morning, that it enhances that understanding. It allows me to define that timeline more clearly, more appropriately, because I'm operating with that understanding as a backdrop at all times. Yeah. So thinking about all of those things and then now bring in worry. So I think all kids worry a little bit. You know, I remember as a kid, I was, I think probably a pretty adventurous independent kid, but I did have like those, I have a couple really like clear memories of, you know, random things I would worry about or 
recurring nightmares. There seemed to be like this, you know, same bear or whatever that like always showed up. So what are some ways that we can identify? I mean, some of our kids will just tell us what they're afraid of, but then sometimes it doesn't always maybe look like worry. So what are some of the other things that kids are telling us either with their behaviors or their emotions or like, what are some of the other ways worry might show up Mm. for kids? Yeah. I think it is of such importance to lean into the wisdom you just spoke to that quite honestly, a lot of times worry won't present in it's classic understanding, you know, as, as we even think about, I talk a lot in my newest book about how anxiety and depression, both with boys tends to present really differently. And I think it's some of how we miss it. And so I found over the years that a lot of anxious boys, a high percentage of anxious boys in a classroom setting, for example, look restless, fidgety, under-focused, inattentive, which tend to be the things we would first think about with ADHD. And I've seen countless boys who've been misdiagnosed with ADHD or even mismedicated with it for ADHD when it's an undercurrent of anxiety underneath. And so, you know, for any one of us, when our brain gets hijacked by worry, it's going to be harder to bring attention and focus to the equation. And so it makes sense where if already boys have a lot of energy and, you know, sitting still and maintaining focus in a classroom could be hard on a good day under the best of circumstances, all the more when worry creeps in and where those boys oftentimes are not going to present with classic fear, classic worry, but that's the undercurrent that's driving a lot of the behaviors. And and we will always say that all behavior is communication of some kind. And our job as parents and educators is really to lean into the behavior to see, okay, what's in play? What can I learn? What do I need to pay attention to that could inform my response differently if I'm really absorbing all of what this behavior might mean as opposed to just addressing the noncompliance or addressing the disobedience and really missing something foundational in the equation. So with depression, for example, a lot of boys present as really angry. And so when we think about depression, the first thing we think about is sad, lethargic folks who are often unmotivated, have a hard time getting out of bed. And and quite honestly, I don't tend to see a lot of boys who present in that classic way. It certainly can. I want to be clear in saying that, but a lot of times it shows up more as anger, irritability. I had a mom years ago say, it's like my son just wakes up with a chronic low-grade irritability every day. And it was a depression that was driving that response more than anything. So it's where I love the way you asked that question. We want to pay really close attention to its presentation. We talk a lot about two particular presentations that we see with a high percentage of kids. That's not to say all kids are going to meet this presentation, but one is what we call the classic imploder. And I might argue that I think a higher percentage of girls meet the imploder presentation and they're kids who feel worry and become more pleasing, more perfectionistic or more performing, which is honestly why I think we miss it with a lot of girls in the classroom because they look like a teacher's dream. A lot of times, you know, they're working 10 times harder to do. They're not just doing what's required of them. They're going above and beyond. And so they're turning the anxiety inward and, and the opposite presentation would be classic exploders. And those are kids where it's coming out again, a lot of times in behaviors and where it's easy to miss. And certainly kids can swing between both presentations. There are kids who are imploders during the academic day and more exploders at night. In fact, we sit with a lot of parents who would say, you know, 
year after year, I conference with their teachers and get the greatest reports. You know, I'm particularly parents of firstborn girls. You know, her teacher can't say enough great things about her. She is like a dream model student. And then that's not at all who she is at night. I had a dad a few weeks ago who said, I was listening to my daughter's teacher go on and on and on about her. And all I could think was, if I had videoed her last night at 7 p.m., you'd have no idea who you're talking about right now. And that's that swing from imploder during the day, exploder at night. And so one of the interesting things, there are a lot of interesting things as we study anxiety with the pediatric population. But one of the things we've learned is that though girls are twice as likely to struggle more boys get taken in for help. And my suspicion around that is that I think it's because a lot more boys are presenting as classic exploders. So it's behaviors we can't look away from. You know, they're, they're becoming problematic more oftentimes in that setting in ways that we can't help but lean in. Whereas for those girls who are imploders, you know, they're just working overtime to contain it throughout the day. So I think that's some of why that's my suspicion around why that particular statistic is true. Okay. So I have so many questions, but you hit on one thing that I think is so true for so many of our families, maybe for different reasons, but you mentioned like a presentation that's different, perhaps in public or in a classroom. And then we call it restraint collapse when, you know, kids get home and maybe all that implosion kind of turns into explosion. And I think what I hear from a lot of the families that we talk to is that what happens is then either the therapist or the teacher or whoever is the person that gets to interact with our children during their kind of less explosive presentation. So, you know, they see this like maybe classic overachiever or someone who kind of is always flying under the radar to follow the rules. And then we have these behaviors at home is that they maybe don't qualify for an IEP or if someone tells them they don't qualify for a 504 or an IEP because their behavior, you know, looks okay in school, or you have, you know, people are like, like maybe they don't, believe them. You know, they're like, I don't, that, not that kid, you know, like you said, like, I wish I had a video to show because it was like a different kid. And so, you know, what would you say to parents who are kind of fighting this kind of like seemingly uphill battle of net of advocating for our kids, because we know we see the anxiety and maybe they're only comfortable enough to show it, you know, behind closed doors. Like, how do we get help when they don't present like that to all the people that are evaluating them? Yes. Well, I would first want to say two things to those parents. One, I'm so grateful you could hear us having this conversation in this way to normalize that. I don't think we can talk enough about that because I found when we don't, what inevitably happens in some way, whether parents say it out loud or not, they're operating under this idea of I'm doing something wrong. You know, they're asking the question whether they're aware they're asking it or not of what are all these other adults in their life doing well or doing right that I'm doing wrong because he or she seems to be performing well at school in sports and extracurricular experiences. And I love that you use the word safety. It's often that you're not doing something wrong and other people are doing it right. It's just that they feel the safest. And so I love that language of restraint collapse. It's just this sense of I'm going to regulate throughout the day. I'm going to empty out my regulation tank throughout the day with all of these folks that I don't feel as safe with. And then when I get with my safe people, it's okay if the tank is empty. And so I would first and foremost want to say that's incredibly normal. It's why I can't talk enough about it when I intersect with parents. 
so that you aren't wrongly circling around that question of what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Because I just don't think that's helpful. And, and particularly when we highlight this tendency, I would say nextly, I think this may sound a little strange, but stay with me. One of the practices we talk about in Are My Kids on Track is one that we call game day footage. And I think a lot of student athletes understand this. You know, I often will, you know, ask kids that question, like, why do you think your coach would ever have you come back and watch footage of a game that's already completed? Like, you can't change the outcome. It's not going to affect the score. You know, and most every student athlete would say it's because we've got something to learn. Like there's something to learn from watching the footage. And I might see something from a different perspective that I didn't see when I was on the field or on the court. So it's a film or game day footage is a very common practice with a lot of coaches. And let's learn from something we might not have seen when we were in the game. And we encourage parents to do that with kids at times in a way that can be helpful, not in a shaming way. Not in a surprising way, like I'm going to whip out my phone when you're in a dysregulated moment, but we're going to talk in a calm moment about the benefit of this practice and parents even saying, I want to learn what I could do differently and I want to help you learn something differently. And then even saying this may be something helpful for us to bring to your counselor at points as well, because, you know, we have countless parents who come through the doors of our office who will be like, my fear is they're going to do everything you ask them to do in session. And then they're going to go home and do nothing. And that's super common. And so we found that to be a helpful practice. But again, it's done something that's talked about in a calm moment where all parties are in agreement of its purpose. And then we bring that in for the purpose of learning. And so parents oftentimes will find when we kind of watch some of that film, you know, okay, I, I could see where I matched their intensity in that moment. I could see where I wasn't bringing you know, one of the definitions of co-regulation is sharing my calm. I didn't have any calm to share because I hadn't done enough regulation work myself to have some calm to share. And so I think that can be useful in those moments, particularly for those kids who may report to teachers or report to their therapists. Like I'm practicing everything you told me to. And often we'll have parents come and say, well, they are practicing for maybe about 30 to 60 seconds and then they abandon ship and kind of default to old patterns. And that's super common for a lot of kids. So I think that could be one practice that's useful to kind of bring everybody onto the same page. Yeah, I love that. A lot of our families already may even have kind of cameras running, you know, that we could pull footage from already. So it's not that like kind of invasive, like here's my camera. Yes. <laughs> I'm watching you thing. And we had this practice with our kids years ago where we used to do this glow grow thing at the end of the day. And I'm thinking, I think that would have worked really well with our kids is to again, not have like a whole session about this, but to maybe like watch it together. And then, you know, the kids would get to give the parents like one, one glow, like one thing we did right. And one grow one thing we could do better, you yes. know, and then that we could you know, maybe do one of those in return um, to not, again, over elaborate it. We find that our kids need few words, you know, they have a lot of language processing, but probably like one glow grow for each of us, we could probably all handle that. And so I, I think that's a really, really great idea. And I love the sports analogy to kind of, again, take some of the shame out of that and like make it something that kind of is normalized to something that they may have already experienced yes. before. 
I had a student athlete years ago that I was working with who he was an amazing student, incredible tennis player, but he would, to his parents reporting, really get in his head and it would start to affect his performance on the court in ways he didn't want, but he wasn't recognizing the signs and signals his body was giving him when some anxiety was registering. And so his parents recommended that practice and I had him bring it into session. So we're watching footage from the tennis court, not from home. And it was so neat to see him build a lot of awareness around when it was happening and how he was kind of bypassing some of the signs and signals. One of the things I talk about in my new book is what I call the three R's, recognize, regulate, and repair. And recognize is, I talk to kids about how it's kind of like the dashboard of a car that, you know, our car will signal us when the wiper fluid is low or when the tire is low and needs some air, when the tank is heading toward empty. And as long as we're paying attention to those signs and signals and attending to them, the car keeps running. Sometimes we get bigger signals like the check engine light. If I ignore those signs and signals, I could do some real damage to the vehicle. The same is true for us. If I ignore the signs and signals my body is giving me at different points along the way, I can't do the important work of regulation, which is a skill set every one of us, not just kids and adolescents, but us as adults are using every single day. And so that practice of film or game day footage really does create an opportunity, I think, for kids to build more of that first star and start to see evidence of where they might be bypassing those signs and signals. You know, I had a kid one time watch it with his parents and he was like, Ooh, I didn't even notice I was clenching my fifth fist or I didn't realize I was yelling so loud in that moment. I'm like, absolutely. Cause if, you know, on a one to 10 scale, if we jump straight into the eight to 10 space, a lot of times we aren't operating from a place of awareness at that point. Our nervous system is in that heightened state of arousal and we're not paying attention to that first star. So I think that practice really has layers and layers of great benefit for kids and for parents. Yeah, we're doing your workbook, the Is It Raising Emotionally Strong Boys workbook with one of our kids right now. And we just did the page where they like kind of color and shade in like where they feel, is it stress or worry or whatever yes. in their bodies? And I was so like surprised at some of the things that our son told us, like, I mean, we're watching him, right? So we, I thought kind of, I knew kind of where some of this would show up, but I was surprised at how much more insight he had and some of the things that he colored. And then I had him kind of in addition to the coloring kind of write out like why he colored, what he did and all these things. And it was such a good conversation starter for mm-hmm. me to, you know, say, the next time, you know, he kind of stomped his way through the kitchen. I was like thinking, you know, I'm like, where did he color? I'm like, okay, well, how does your chest feel right now? You know, and what can we do about that? And so already, you know, I think we're like 12 pages in, it's been such a huge gift and he's outside the like chronological age. I think that the book is recommended for, but where he talked about kind of the, the delay for some of our kids. So he's chronologically 15 and we're working through the book and it's still like spot on for us. So uh. I'm so thankful to hear you say that. that. Yeah. Thank you for that encouragement. Well, can I laugh with you on something else? I had a mom approach me at a book to the book table yesterday. I was speaking at an event in Texas and she said, David, I bought your workbook for my seven-year-old son, but quite honestly, I'm using it the most with my 37-year-old husband. And I said, well, (laughs) fantastic. I I didn't have him in mind when I wrote it, but I'm grateful it's useful for any yeah. individual. Maybe so the second was... printing, you could just take the ages <laughs> off so people feel free, like, you know, feel they could use it for anyone. <laughs> well, and you know, one of the things I say in the front of that book, and we talk about this seminar, my kids on track is that we can only take the kids we love as far as we've gone ourselves. So 
you know, I've loved hearing parents say, as I'm reading this book or as I'm working through the workbook, like I'm feeling challenged myself. I'm reminded myself. And I just think what a great thing for kids to hear their parents talk about. Like I'm still practicing these things. I still struggle sometimes with regulation. I'm not offering enough calm to the situation. And so I'm deeply encouraged to hear that kind of feedback over and over. And is one of my great hopes that that continues to happen. Yeah. Well, I love it. So what are some other like really practical things? What are your favorite tips to give to parents when they're parenting kids with worry? I mean, I think the thing is, is in this day and age, like you're almost not, you can't be, you're not parenting a kid without worry. I mean, we could just, I think safely assume if you're parenting, you are parenting a child with worry and anxiety. And so like, what are the, what are the really practical, tangible things knowing, like now that we know that we've established that, that how do we move forward? One of the things I would say first is there is a, a working definition we use in our practice that I love that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of myself. So the problem or the situation feels too big. I feel too small. And if we are holding on to that definition as parents, I think knowing that's true, knowing that's the case, I think that can inform our steps forward differently. So what the anxiety research tells us time and time again is the two biggest parenting traps are escape and avoidance. We see kids struggle in a situation. We want to just extract them from that as opposed to moving toward what we call support and challenge. And support is offering empathy. The support is meeting our kids in hard places. Support is acknowledging their struggle. There's so many layers to what support looks like, but also offering challenge so that they aren't locking into that definition of, yes, the problem, the situation is way too big and I'm too small. And when we extract kids from hard things, we're confirming that definition. Like, you're right. School's way too scary. Let's just pull you out of school. Playing baseball triggers way too much fear for you. Let's just quit baseball. And so what does it look like, thirdly, to baby step our way toward the hard things? And that's key. You know, one of the benchmarks of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which is the gold standard of supporting and treating anxiety, is what we call exposures and ladders. And it's just baby stepping our way toward the scary thing. How could we create some very small goals as we work toward the scary thing, which is part of that challenge piece. But I would often, you know, encourage parents think about first where you naturally lean, because in my experience, having done this work for this long, I think as parents, we instinctively lean more toward one or the other. We're just more naturally supportive or we are more naturally people who are great at challenge. And what kids need is equal parts from both parents. If both parents are present in the household and, and if it is a single parenting situation, what does it look like for me to bring both parts, equal parts to both? And knowing that means I'm going to have to work more in the place where I'm not as strong. So I would say those are a couple ideas of things that I would say foundationally, I want to really encourage parents to think about. And then even setting some small goals. What are what are some small goals I want to set around those baby steps we're going to take? And then also the anxiety research tells us that it's really beneficial. I, I love telling parents this who have not stumbled across this. It's really beneficial to create incentives. I sit with a lot of parents who are like, I'm embarrassed to tell you we've been bribing her. And then they describe what they've been doing. And I'm like, you're not bribing, you're incentivizing. And there's a lot of great research around the benefits of that. In fact, it's the exact same research 
we know is helpful for folks if they're training to run a long race. For example, if you've never run a half marathon or a marathon, like you need to set an incentive for yourself when you hit the five mile mark, when you hit the 10 mile mark, when you get to 15 miles, like we know that's of great benefit in terms of developing a healthy mindset around tackling a significant goal like that. And the same is true when we're battling anxiety. If I set some incentives along the way, when I'm practicing these hard things, it's of great benefit. Yeah. What is the balance between incentivizing kind of ourselves to maybe stretch our window of tolerance into that like challenge space and then not what we find is a lot of kids that have attachment challenges want to transactionalize relationship, right? And so we talk a lot about using relationship kind of as the safety net that kind of hopefully, but not always shifts and changes behavior kind of from that, like the, you know, base and not kind of this like behavior modification, like, you know, act this way so that you can get the good thing. But then when my back, you know, is turned, like, so what's the difference between kind of like that incentivizing to get out, you know, maybe overcome a challenge and then like using incentive systems to just behavior modify what our kids, how our kids are acting in the world. That's a great question. I'd, I'd say two thoughts there. I'd say one, I think we really can fold the relational piece into the incentives, you know, that when we're working toward the hard thing, However, you might want to frame that you and I are going to stay up five minutes later and get to read an extra book. You and I are going to get to stay up five minutes later and build on that Lego project. You're so excited that you're working on whatever that may be that involves time together. I would also say as we're thinking of traveling that journey, and and I know parents know this, just a great reminder for all of us that we always want to be rewarding the work and not the outcome. And so acknowledging consistently throughout, I can tell you're working hard, you know, even let's work with that baseball example. I could tell when you got out of the car that you stopped and paused and you felt really scared about taking steps forward toward the field at that point. And you did. I thought it was amazing that you identified a friend you wanted to walk onto the field with today. So we're always drawing attention to the hard work they're doing of baby stepping their way toward this difficult thing. So I know parents know that. I just want you to hear me say that again. We want to keep praising that hard work that they're doing and the acknowledgement that for anxious kids, the work's 10 times harder because the brain is constantly tricking them into thinking the problem's too big, the situation's too big, and you're too small. Yeah. What are some of those things that we can do to kind of grow that self-confidence in themselves? You know, maybe the problem, I mean, our perspective on the problem can certainly change. Maybe the problem isn't going anywhere, you know? Yeah. What our fifth grade teacher asks us to do is kind of, you know, what fifth grade teachers ask people to do. Like, how do we grow our kids underestimation of themselves so that they can understand, you know, feel empowered that they can kind of overcome some of these tricky things? I think one thing to remember is that all kids crave independence. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that with anxious kids because they can look needy, clingy, dependent, and as if there is not a desire for independence in the mix and all kids desire that independence. It's just that anxiety will hijack the brain and block that desire at times. But I think going back to that over and over and over in our minds, even when kids can't get there on their own, 
is the starting point, I would say 100% of the time. And then I mentioned goal setting a few minutes ago. I think it's really great when we brainstorm with kids around the goal setting as opposed to setting goals for them, which is another mistake I think we can make. And sometimes their trajectory or timeline is going to look very different than what we might have imagined or even hoped. But working within their ideas, I think, is foundational in taking that journey. Otherwise, even getting their input on the incentives. Otherwise, that's not saying we're going to land on their idea, but working with their ideas. Otherwise, I think it just de-incentivizes kids if they feel the sense of these rule, these goals are imposed on me. These incentives were handed over to me as opposed to I had more ownership in that process. And if it's difficult to do that with your kids, that may be where it's helpful to pull in a third party, whether it is a school counselor or an outpatient therapist or you know, some other trusted adult that you think, okay, we could probably have a more thoughtful conversation if this person's present. We probably set some different goals if we had outside input in the mix. Otherwise, I love Brooks and Goldstein wrote a great book years ago called um, Raising Resilient Kids. And I love when they talk about a parent with a resilient mindset, you know, recognizes that if something's not working for a period of time, I need to try something different. I need to develop a new script. And we know that, but I think we forget that. You know, it's like that age-old definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome. If we keep getting roadblocked in those places, let's pull an outside voice into the mix. It's amazing how that can change the equation. Yeah. Well, we're huge fans. We say often, kind of like our good friend Suzanne Stabile says, like everyone should have a spiritual director and a therapist. And yes. you know, I think because with our kids and you know because we're in the parenting space and you say, and the parent coach, and, you know, that's a lot of people on your team and that's a lot of time and perhaps a lot of financial resources, you know, so that's kind of like the, you know, platinum standard, if you will, but for families who are kind of, you know, who don't have a, who maybe do have a therapist on call or maybe don't like what are, when are the times that this is like the absolute, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have a therapist or you don't like if your child or if your family's experiencing this type or level of stress or impact because of worry, then you like, you know, don't pass go, you know, don't collect your 200, yeah. like whatever, like go straight and find like some, some of that third party outside help for your family. So what would those signs be? You know, I would say if you were to find you're stuck in any place, I think it's worth assessing that even in ways that we wouldn't consider of significance, but just, let's just say in, in daily discipline, I, I think it's an incredible gift to pull in an outside voice. And, you know, to your great question, it may not be an option for that to be a professional, but it could be another trusted voice. I'm working with a single mom right now and her sister lives in town and she calls her both my sister and the coach is her other name. And she's like, we call in the coach a lot because it's amazing how differently my kids operate when she's in the mix and they really trust her voice. I really trust her voice and just bringing her into the equation at times will begin to create a different outcome for every one of us, not just for my kids, but for me as well. And so I think that trusted voice could look like a lot of different things, but certainly if we're seeing strong evidence of regression in some significant areas, you know, kids who've successfully slept through the night who are all of a sudden experiencing consistent chronic disruptive sleep. I'm not talking about a few nights that are off at that point, but, you know, particularly in peak points of development, when we know kids just can't 
compromise sleep. You know, they need it for brain growth. They need it for regulation. They need it for all the important things. And so if we were to see in a significant category, some ongoing evidence of regression, I would look at pulling in an outside resource to just say, help us think through what we need to do. Go in for a well visit with your pediatrician and just say, help us think through what we need to do different at this point, because we're seeing evidence of where we're really stuck or we're seeing evidence of some significant regression. Yeah. I'll tell you going, I had a lot of families that whose kids transitioned to kindergarten, like kind of coming out of COVID that was like a killer. Oh my gosh, these poor kids. I know. I saw the same thing as if that weren't a big enough transition on a good day under the best of circumstances, (laughs) all the more when you didn't have the opportunity for consistent practice in those years running up. Yeah, Yeah. I absolutely. And still seeing evidence. I mean, with kids all throughout development, the residual of COVID and Melissa, I'm so glad you brought that up because I would want to highlight that as well to any parent listening. You know, if you're not seeing some evidence of where there are hiccups within development, then good for you. But I'm kind of shocked because I think the majority (laughs) of kids really are. And some kids even more. We're, we've talked a lot culturally about how we're going to be playing catch up academically for some time with what was missed in that space. But I don't think we've talked near enough about where we're going to be playing catch up emotionally and socially with kids. And I think about, I had a, a parent tell me that I did a consultation with a parent in California and, and they're, you know, their stay-at-home orders went for a longer period than it did in other states. Their lockdown experience looked different than it did in a lot of places. And this mom said, David, I remember the first time I took him to a park that was open and a child took his toy. You have just that normal interaction that we know is going to happen with kids at a park. And he lost his mind. And I felt so alarmed initially, like, oh, my goodness, he has no way. He doesn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden I was like, of course he doesn't know what to do. He hasn't had practice. So, of course, he'd lose his mind. And I, I think about her telling that story and I think about all the different ways that kids have experienced that loss of opportunity for some period of time. Just even if you didn't have an opportunity to go have a spend the night at your grandparents' house, you haven't had as much practice. I did several trainings with camp staffs, you know, following the world opening up. And I just said, you are going to see more homesickness than you have ever seen. These kids have not had practice and opportunity to go to their grandparents to spend the night at a friend's house to or just leave for like three hours and come back, <laughs> let alone a whole week. Exactly. And so we're just going to see evidence of that for some time. We're all playing catch up in some places. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as parents, like our nervous systems are kind of just as shot. Like we're just operating with a little less margin, a little less white space. Agreed. Agreed. Well, David, we could talk forever, I'm sure, about all of these things. So where... where can people find you, find the books that you've written? Because, you know, you have graciously put all of a lot of the work that you've done into books, which I think are such an accessible way for parents to, you know, get a hold of some really great information. And it's no small feat. You know, we're in the middle of writing a book and I'm like 10 books. I'm never doing, I'm like one book in, I'm never doing this again. So I appreciate, you know, just the work <laughs> and dedication that that takes to make that available to the world in a bigger way, because I wish we could all have one giant sleepover at your little yellow house and you could just pour all the wisdom onto us. So where can people find you, continue to follow your work? Thank you. Thank you. You could find all of my work at raisingboysandgirls.com as our website. And it will take you to our podcast. We are 
currently in our fifth season, which we're calling Raising Emotionally Strong and Worry-Free Kids. And so it'll take you to our podcast. It'll take you to our books. We've got some on-demand resources. It'll take you to our Instagram account. We are putting out every week, we're pushing out as much free content to parents as possible. So we do short videos with kind of here's three things to consider, three things to think about. And we run through development, you know, We'll focus on toddlers, focus on teenagers, everything in between. And so that website houses all of our content. It would even let you know if, you know, we happen to be traveling to your city and there's a a church or school hosting us. Would love to get an opportunity to meet you if we're in your direction. So thank you for asking that. We are so thankful for the amazing guests who share their wisdom and expertise in the village. Adoptive parenting gives us both the challenge and the opportunity to keep learning new tools and perspectives. Each workshop in the village is followed by a live Q&A with our guest. If you're not already a member of the village, we invite you to join us for regular gatherings and workshops where you will find the tools you need for exactly where you are. As a valued podcast listener, you'll get 50% off your first month. Just go to theadoptionconnection.com slash village and use the code podcast. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.